Okay, and we're live. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the World Exclusive Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Butot, and today we're joined by a very special guest, a student in clinical psychology, a doctoral student in clinical psychology here at USF, Andrew Devendorf. Hello, Andrew. How you doing? Hello. It's good. It's an honor to be the first guest on this podcast. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much of a listenership we'll get here. I'll I'll try to promote it, but uh, yeah, I, I I really appreciate you coming on. I uh, I reached out to Andrew. Um, he's recently published a article that was overviewing depression and the presentation of stigma in YouTube videos. Uh, it should also be noted the other authors of the study besides Andrew, which are Ansley Bender and Jonathan Rottenberg. The study would not be possible without them. Um, and I thought it was a really interesting article. I just wanted to, you know, talk to him about it, talk to him about it, some of his research process, some revelations, some challenges he went through. So that's essentially it. The first question I, I would ask you is, so how did you really get into coming up with this topic as a research framework saying, I want to look specifically at how stigma is presented in YouTube videos, how depression is presented in YouTube videos? Yeah, so my research centers on kind of messages about depression in the public sphere. So what is the public sphere? So whenever people talk about depression, whenever people, you know, make movies or commercials about depression, there are all these kinds of explicit and implicit messages that people take in. Um, so a classic example is, you know, when there's an antidepressant commercial you know, usually you see somebody in the commercial, they're feeling sad. And then if they just take Cymbalta, then suddenly everything gets better. And so pretty explicitly in that message, there's kind of these messages that are saying, oh, depression, um, it makes you feel this way. There's some sort of biological reasoning for it. And so if you just take this biological medication, then it'll just go away. And it's obviously more complicated than that. Sure. Um, but these messages, people take them in and it really influences how they respond when they themselves start to feel depressed. And also when they start to learn that their friends or family members have depression. And I was really curious about what other types of messages about depression are out there, um, specifically on the platform of YouTube, because people might not know this, but there are thousands of videos about depression with millions and millions of views. And so my thinking is that these messages are kind of permeating the public sphere and kind of contributing to some misconceptions about depression, which might influence kind of some stigma and prejudice that we see towards it. Okay, sure. So, so what you're kind of like saying is that in the way it's presented, you would see on TV for, you know, they give you, okay, this is, you know, a Zoloft or whatever. This is an antidepressant, a mood stabilizer, that it's almost like a biologically reductionist way of looking at depression as just, okay, this is just a, a semblance of, you know, brain chemicals and there's no other factors. There's no like cultural factors. There's no like, it's not taking into account the full spectrum of reasons why someone might de be depressed in the first place. And maybe this was what you were addressing. I think we'll get to it later on of that a lot of these videos you were looking at were almost biologically reductionistic in the way they were presenting yeah. depression. Exactly. Um, you're spot on with there are these messages about depression and people's beliefs. But what we know through, you know, 
years and years of research that depression is a lot more complicated than just a simple chemical imbalance. There's social factors, there's cultural factors. It's not that biology isn't important. Obviously, you know, people's genetics and biological predispositions can play a role, but it's just a little bit more complicated than sometimes people make it out to be. And why that matters to me is because some of those beliefs can actually have negative repercussions. And sometimes when I'm having this conversation with people, they think, well, if we present depression more biologically, then can't that reduce stigma? Can't that take the blame off somebody who experiences depression? And we do see that when we actually do different research studies, but we also see that when people view depression as more biological, they actually view them as less likely to get better. They view people with depression as more difficult to talk to, and they think this isn't totally how it goes, but we see some maybe social distance. You can imagine somebody who thinks that uh, their family member has depression and they don't really believe that they ever get better. Well, that could really influence the relationship. And if you don't think that somebody can get better, people might not know this, but then they might actually um, kind of cut off the ties and like not provide that social support for that person because they have this kind of deterministic, reductionistic beliefs. That's kind of how it goes. Right. So in this paper, when you were quantifying, I think you, if I'm correct, 327 YouTube videos. Yeah. So I guess just to provide people some context for what I did. So um, I did a systematic, systematic investigation of YouTube videos. So I watched actually over 600 YouTube videos to get a pretty representative sample of what types of messages about depression are on YouTube. And then I coded them on whether or not they endorsed certain messages. So some of the messages you and me are talking about are whether or not there was a biological cause or whether or not there was an environmental cause. I also coded them to see kind of how the video talked about depression in terms of how long it lasts or can it get better or what types of treatments are available. Right. So you had causes, which was what we were talking about earlier, like biology, environmental I believe your hypothesis was biopsychosocial would be the most prevalent perspective, mm-hmm. which I guess for some added context, like that's that's like a combination of social factors, biology, psychological factors all in one. I don't know if that's a good definition, but I think, and I don't know if this is the consensus because I haven't, I'm, I'm obviously not as experienced as a researcher as you, but I think that's like some of the framework that like a lot of modern psychologists look at depression as an issue, like from a biopsychosocial. I know it has its limitations, but is that the case? Yeah. Most ways that clinicians and researchers think about depression is this biopsychosocial framework, meaning that there's biological factors that can include, you know, kind of like your your mood state, um, kind of your energy. It includes social factors. So kind of your social surroundings, support, friendships, family members, or even like your workplace, your job, and kind of these psychological factors. So we know that people with depression tend to be a little bit harder on themselves in the ways that they think about the world. They might be a little bit more pessimistic, understandably, maybe due to some previous life events that they've had. And so when we're actually trying to intervene on depression, we don't want to just pretend like we're intervening on one aspect. We want to address it from these multitude of ways and also encourage people to recognize that there's actually lots of different ways that you can help fight depression. 
And it might not just be one or the other. It might take time to find the right thing. Um, but there's actually lots of things that people can do that's more complicated than just like taking Cymbalta, as we talked about in the commercial earlier. Sure. And that leads us into the next category, which you discussed in the paper, which was the timeline, the presentation of how long it would take to alleviate depression or depressive states um, as presented in YouTube videos. So I think the consensus was that it was like a year to a chronic thing, like a chronic lifetime thing. Did that surprise you at all? What were you expecting going in just from a timeline perspective? Yeah, I didn't have any specific hypotheses that were based in any previous literature. Because honestly, this is the first study that actually looked at this variable in public messages. Sure. But I think my in my personal experience, when I talk about depression, people tend to think that once you get depression, it kind of never really goes away. Yeah. And even if you start to feel better, it's going to come back. And so I wasn't that surprised to find that in about half the videos that we saw, there were kind of these more chronic presentations. But why I care about this so much is it kind of goes back to... Um, when you actually look at people who experience a major depressive episode, about half of people who experience a major depressive episode actually never experience depression again. And this is kind of this other group that we don't really talk about and that we could study and learn more about. And actually, most people with depression can recover after about six months. And so again, it's not, it's not to undermine or um, get down on people who don't recover within that time frame. Obviously, everybody's different and whatnot. It's just to recognize that, you know, for somebody maybe experiencing their first depressive episode, it's not hopeless that you're not going to have this the rest of your life. You could, you know, everybody's depression is different, but we don't know that for sure. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. that That's really interesting. Cause again, just when I hear depression to me, like I understand that, okay, yes, there are methods you could take to alleviate this, whether it's, you know, say medication or, you know, therapy or something like that, which were two factors I think that were presented pretty heavily in those YouTube videos. I yeah. typically think is this is like a long-term thing that, you know, it's treated, but maybe this isn't solved. You know, it's, it's really interesting that that's like my cultural perspective and whether that's just, oh, maybe it is these YouTube videos or maybe it is television commercials with antidepressants. I just thought that was interesting. As far as another factor you was curability, which we kind of got into, which was the timeline. So where a lot of these videos, the messaging, just this is a lifelong thing. This is almost like a chronic, say, muscle injury or something like that. And that's how they're presenting it. So I was a little bit pleased to see that when I was watching the videos, actually, most of the videos did embrace what we might call a recovery oriented message, sure. which might be, like, you know, if you get depressed, you can get better. Or, you know, if you with some lifestyle changes, maybe some therapy, medication, things can improve. That said, I wasn't actually able to write about this in the paper, but I uh, talk about it a little bit in the conversation piece that I think you approached me about, Yeah, is some articles actually went the completely opposite way and actually kind of simplified to kind of these recovery messages about depression. Sure. So I'm not kidding. Anyone can look up like foods that help fight depression. Right. Um, that's a very specific video. And you watch it and you see like, oh, if you eat something like uh, dark chocolate, dark chocolate can enjoy it to dopamine and these feel-good hormones. If you eat it, you can get better. Yeah. And so that was a 
that's actually another like kind of a other extreme that I also am kind of concerned about in the public sphere is that sometimes people, I feel like we're on two um, unhelpful ends. People either think you can't get better at all, or you think like, oh yeah, you can just snap out of it by like changing your diet. And the truth is probably in the middle of like, it, it's just a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah. And it can be really invalidating to people when they see messages. If you have depression, you see messages that like, oh, if you just change your diet or exercise, then everything will be better, you know? Right. So it's just, it's the two extremes. I think for me, it's for like so long, depression was almost looked at as like not taken as seriously as it needs to be. And then they were prescribed on this one end of the spectrum where it's like, oh, you just need to get out more. Or you just need to exercise. And then we've kind of shifted a little bit maybe to just, oh, you just need these medications and th that's it. And right. It's it's all about like the middle ground because that that's where most things are. It's in the gray area. It's, there's not a, one end of the extreme or the other. One thing I wanted to ask you that you addressed in the paper was the qualifications of the people actually promoting these videos and presenting these videos. The majority of which I believe were just completely unqualified. And by unqualified, I mean like you don't have like a medical degree, you're not a therapist, you're not a mental health professional and things like that. So what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, that's the great thing about YouTube is that it's open source. Anyone can make a video and anyone can disseminate and share it. That said, in that format, there's a lot of people who might not have the right credentials to know whether or not the information that they're sharing is credible or helpful. And so it's not that I'm against that these YouTube videos weren't from um, medical professionals or psychologists. Obviously, that'd be unreasonable for anyone. I, I don't think you need to be a mental health provider to you know, provide some helpful advice in the form of a YouTube video. Sure. That said, it was concerning to me for my own field. And this is kind of a soapbox that people who know me that I get on is I wish that psychologists and other mental health authorities did a better job at connect, connecting with organizations or public platforms to actually, they be the voices to share this information that we kind of know is a little bit more credible. And they don't need to be the ones to do it themselves, but maybe they can work with some of these more influential vloggers or YouTubers, people who have those wide reaches, those millions and millions of subscribers who are getting the message out there. I just wish that some more people in my field worked with some of those kind of YouTube celebrities to kind of um, be like a checks and balances of the type of information that they're spreading to make sure, sure. that, again, it's both accurate and helpful from you know, a person with depression's perspective and also kind of just that overall cultural perspective. So do you, what do you say this is like a problem of like accessibility just in the scientific community? Because I, I know for especially if you're trying to find articles on depression and say there's these huge like research articles like yourself, sometimes they're hidden behind a paywall if you're not going through the institution. I know for you that I, you've published this free, I think, just it's like an open access thing, this article. So this specific article that's published in Clinical Psychology Review, I don't believe it's open access. It might be open right now because maybe the lobbying period. But you're right in that the traditional scientific publishing model is that um, the scientists, we write our scientific articles, and then we submit them to these journals that are owned by these publishers. And unless uh, a researcher pays like these exorbitant, costly fees that are like two to 
$10,000 sometimes, they, can, they aren't open access. And so then what happens is that they're behind a paywall where people in the public or people who are no longer in research can't really access them unless they have like a database. So what I'm for is, again, scientists taking up the torch to kind of disseminate their findings in a more publicly accessible format. So I actually don't mind that much that there's a paywall because I don't know how many regular people um, access peer-reviewed articles or know how to, you know, I, I have trouble reading our articles and I'm in our field because we write with so much jargon. Right. But I wish that more people in my field would kind of communicate their findings in an accessible format. So, you know, you found my article through the conversation, right. which is a platform where you write thousand word articles summarizing research. You and me wouldn't even be having this conversation if I didn't write that article. That's true. And I think, you know, if more scientists, you know, we have the ability, if we connect it with journalists or wrote our own op-eds or even started blogs, I think it could be just really valuable to kind of um, getting more, again, accurate and helpful information out there about mental health. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. But on the other hand, I think you do run into some potential challenges there. And this, again, it's, I don't think it's the fault of anyone here. It's like maybe the format, right? Um, just as an example, there was, uh, are you familiar with uh, Johan Hari and some of his work? Is he the guy who wrote the book, The Nine Causes of Depression? I don't know if he did. I think his most famous one was uh, Chasing the Scream. It was it was essentially a book about addiction. And in the book, he posited mm -hmm. that like addiction primarily can be a result of like isolation instead of like brain chemistry or something. He said primarily, and that's what I'm trying to emphasize here is that sometimes when he would, he did this Ted talk and it was, it was very famous and it was very well received, but it was like condensing four minutes of information where he essentially took like the message of he removed primarily into it. So then it almost turned into isolation is the cause of depression, not brain chemistry so it just kind of like stuck when in when in reality yeah. much like depression it's kind of like a middle ground it's you know a gray area so how do you combat the the notion that maybe okay if scientists get out there and they collaborate with these vloggers obviously they want or vloggers or journalists or whoever they want to appeal to you know the most audience possible but that you also have to remain like scientifically credible as to not spread disinformation, not intentionally, of course, but just as a result of the medium. Normally, you know, you raise a really important dilemma for everyone to think about. So I think my perspective is right now, scientists are more on the conservative side and conservative, not meaning the political ideology, right. but yeah. conservative means they're, they really want to hedge talking about their science and they want everything to kind of be uh, perfect and known before they share their work. And there's good reason for that, because as you mentioned, sometimes people take one study, they misinterpret it. And suddenly there's a headline about, you know, if you eat again, dark chocolate, then it cures depression, you know? So I, I understand that. And I do think, again, it, it's really, tricky to talk about this because it's not very sexy and it's kind of hard to talk about the middle ground. Yeah. I think there is a way for scientists and psychologists to balance framing their knowledge for the public in an accessible way that also retains integrity. And it's very tricky, but I think for me, some of my, um, 
science communication fans, sorry, people who I'm a fan of who are science communicators, I think they accomplish this. So I think, um, you know, I've been wanting to write an article for a while about uh, why clinical psychology needs a Bill Nye the psychology guy. Because I think Bill Nye the science guy is a really good example of, you know, he's in our public sphere. Um, I grew up with seeing him in my elementary school classes. He made like science and topics that I didn't care about really fun to learn about. And, you know, I'm sure it wasn't perfect, but at least like I know who he is. And now when I see him and hear him talk about things, he can actually break down really complicated scientific facts in an accessible way for lay people. And so I, I kind of wish that there was some spokesperson for psychology to do that. I think another example with this COVID-19 pandemic is Dr. Anthony Fauci. You know, right. obviously things with COVID-19 have become more political, but I think Dr. Fauci is an esteemed top-tier medical scientist, physician, who has been able to communicate really complicated information in a format for a broad audience to understand. So I do think there's kind of a middle ground. It's really hard to get there because there's not really training in our programs. And I don't think everybody needs to do this. I just kind of wish that more people would. Do you think like psychology suffers from, I guess, past notions when people think of psychology, they tend to think of maybe Freud in his pipe, or they tend to think of these like largely unethical experiments from like the 60s, like the Zimbardo prison experiment, for example. Do you think like that's the reason why, you know, the public needs a like a psychological communicator like a Bill Nye, the psychology guy or something like that, just to sort of like avoid these notions of, oh, psychology is you sit down and, you know, talk about your dreams or, oh, you do these really unethical experiments or something like that? Totally. I... Don't when I talk about this stuff, I never want to put the like blame on the public because they're not the ones who who should know the difference. I think the onus is on members of my field, scientists and psychologists, to kind of uh, redress or correct these images of what psychology is. So you're right in that whenever I talk to my own family members who they know I'm in a clinical psychology program, I talk to them over and over about what I do, and they still have this kind of simplified notion of what therapy is. And I do think people still have these images of like, oh, Sigmund Freud or uh, Dr. Phil, or even kind of self-help gurus like Tony Robbins. And so those people who I just named, especially Dr. Phil and Tony Robbins, can be really problematic because it's kind of not actually psychology based in psychological science. It's kind of psychology for the sake of getting views and making money and entertainment. And like you said earlier, selling books. So yeah, I, I wish more people would be interested in kind of overcoming that or kind of talking more about this, but I don't know. It's something that I am uh, very passionate about and I, I don't really have the solution, but it's something that I just want to raise with more and more people. Right. So I mean, I think you even posited a solution. I, I think if you just address it, if you address psychological and complex topics and you had someone who is a very effective communicator with the level of nuance that you would need for the public comprehending like an actual message and not, you know, a simplified rendition, I think you would combat that because, again, it's, it's sort of a passion of mine is pop science which we got into, which we're kind of getting into with uh, Dr. Phil and Tony Robbins, where the idea is, okay, I take one concept and 
I'm just going to reduce everything in this concept down to this one talking point that I could hammer over and over and over again. Like um, the guy, I'm, I'm not calling him out or anything, but the guy who always comes to mind is Gladwell, Malcolm Gladwell. To my knowledge, I don't think he's like a psychologist. I just think he's a journalist. Like he doesn't really have a lot of credentials and he just, oh, you need 10,000 10, hours to do this. And he sells these millions of books. And I think the like the public really just gets this message so simplified when I don't think people out there in the public are going to read like, oh, I read this book and it was really, you know, it appealed to me because it uh, is a broad audience. But then I'm just going to read this meta analysis, which is saying, OK, actually, no, this is wrong for this level of nuance in this gray area or something like that. But I think what you posited earlier is just combating that with people who are effective communicators who can express nuance in a way like that, you know. So I think I'm just thinking off the top of my head. Um, I have thought about this a little bit more and. Um, it's kind of embedded in our current incentive structure for researchers and academics. Researchers and academics are not really incentivized to publish these pop press pieces or do these podcasts or speak in front of an audience. The stereotype in academia is actually sadly, sadly true of it's like a publisher parish culture, but the publisher parish culture is with academic journal articles which you and me talked about are inaccessible because they're behind paywalls or people can't understand them. So I do think that it probably has to somewhat come from the top or just really passionate people to want to also disseminate their work coming from the top of, um, you know, incentivizing academics to kind of disseminate their work when it's ready to be disseminated. You know, I know that certain universities have already done that and there's already some problems that are coming to my head uh are you familiar with amy cuddy uh i can't say i am okay uh very brief story is that amy cuddy is a social psychologist and she did this really popular ted talk about what's called power poses and this idea is that if you pose in a certain way then it can increase your confidence and actually lead to these biological effects of like changing your hormones or whatever. Hmm. And then a few years later, um, some studies came out that couldn't really replicate the study that she was talking about, or they couldn't recreate the size of the effects that she was talking about with power poses. And she got a lot of criticism and honestly was bullied kind of out of research because she went on this public platform and kind of talked this way about science. And I know from talking to my colleagues that people are almost afraid to get up on the stage of like a and do a TED talk, which again are viewed by thousands, sometimes millions of people. They're afraid to do TED talks because they're afraid to get scolded by their colleagues if their work doesn't replicate or if they feel like their colleagues are going to view them as like overstating claims. Again, that's where I come back to academia is very conservative and the way it wants to prevent present our science. So yeah, I think changing the incentive structure and kind of rewarding people for sharing their work with the public would probably help things too. Do you think maybe another way that everyone in academia uh, could help alleviate this problem? Because I understand it, it's happening a lot with COVID where you'll get one study that is saying, you know, towards the beginning of the pandemic, okay, the, the mass, it's not required. You don't need a mask. Okay, now you need a mask. Well, actually, no, you need an N95 mask because those are the better types of masks. So it's like, should academics emphasize that science is ever-changing 
more to the public to say that, okay, so they don't end up in this like, you know, desolate land of contradictions and things like that. And they're like, oh, science is lying to us. Well, no, actually, like science is just changing or something like that. Yeah. And I can imagine, um, you know, this being again, I, I come at it with this very cultural lens of like, what are people's beliefs, again, about what science is? And I almost like think people who aren't scientists do use science as like, oh, this is a scientific fact and it's never going to change when really science is a method and a process that self-corrects. So, you know, the stuff about um, masks and changing the recommendations and updating it based on the data, maybe we just need to find different comparison and metaphors for when, um, you know, think to like 50, 60 years ago when people didn't think smoking was bad for you. Right. And then, of course, the data comes in. Oh, my God, smoking like does cause cancer. Yeah. And it's not even just people who are smoking. It's the people that are around. And then, again, so this is where I think it just gets into a lot of like the framing and finding effective ways to just communicate with people where you're right, that it doesn't sound confusing. It actually sounds a little bit more understandable. Yeah, COVID-19 is interesting with like, it's kind of frustrating from my standpoint, too, because you know, sometimes I see like um, commercials or like advertisements encouraging people to get vaccines and there'll be like commercials like showing people getting injected with needles and people who are vaccine hesitant do not want to see images of people getting injected with needles. I don't want to see that. And that kind of causes this reaction in me that I'm like, I don't know if I want that. I'm vaccinated and I encourage people to get vaccinated. But that's just an example of how we need to work on not just the science, but the framing of our science and how human beings interpret and use that information. But yeah, we can get back to um, depression and sure. different yeah. frames. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so I think you mentioned in this in the study, because I guess we got a little too far off on uh, scientific communication. Mm -hmm. You said um, you said there was like a presumption of controllability in the uh, the presentation of a lot of these, a lot of these um, videos. Could you expand upon what what you were trying to address there? Controllability, in in what way? Maybe like this. I, I guess we already sort of touched on it. Like controllability, as in, okay, you take this pill or you exercise or something like that. I think you had in in the study itself. That was one of the. I think it was like six factors you measured, yeah. and it was controllability like one through five, or something like that. Okay. Yeah. So I don't think we exactly did controllability. We did curability. Curability. I'm sorry. Yeah. Controllability is something that I'm interested in in the sense of, again, um, again, what do these different messages about is depression biological, situational? Is it something that you have for a lifetime? How does that influence somebody's perceived sense of control, meaning um, what are the beliefs about what they can do about it? Do they think that they can do something about it, given that message, or do they not think they can do something about it? And that's really important because, again, we know that when people don't think that they can do something about it, then they're probably less likely to seek mental health treatment. If they think that they're going to just be depressed forever, then, you know, maybe they don't try anything. You know, I, I'm going to caveat what I'm saying is that we actually, I can also see a, a world in which if somebody thinks something is so severe, then they do seek help for it. So again, it comes back to that balance. And I just want to emphasize that we don't really know the effects of all these messages. 
but just recognizing that they are out there and they probably affect kind of how we deal with and manage depression. And hopefully more people study it. I know I am. And I definitely have different studies in the works, but yeah. Yeah, actually, I would be curious what you would think would be some follow-ups on some of the research you did, because I, again, in the conclusions of the paper, like you just stated, you said, like, we're not entirely sure of the effect of these videos on on people with depression and whether that increases self-stigmatization or whether it, you know, makes them get help or doesn't want them, uh, you know, they don't want to get help or something like that. Um, but but what would be some follow-ups that you, that you would think could expand upon some of the work you've done? Just a few ideas. I think I'm just going to focus on one that I'm most interested in right now. And it's playing with this idea that depression isn't necessarily, again, it's not like necessarily a disease. It's obviously, you know, debilitating. It's, it's terrible. It just makes you feel awful and like everything sucks. That is definitely true. Um, that said, when you feel depressed, rather than thinking of it as kind of a disease, how can you somewhat take um, some strengths out of that experience or some positives from that experience? And again, that's not going to make you feel better, but it might change the way that you manage your own depression. I'll just give you a personal example. So I know that when I start feeling low or depressed or sad, I kind of try to like use it as somewhat of a signal about thinking what's going on in my environment right now. Like it seemed like everything was going well, is there a change? Is it, Am I finding meaning in the work I'm doing? Am I uh, going out enough and hanging out with my friends? And so I think encouraging people to use kind of their mood and their emotions, not to be afraid of them, but to start to use them as somewhat of a sign of uh, guiding them and what they could do about it. And I'm actually working with a colleague. He's at University of Michigan, a psychiatry med school. His name's Hans Schroeder. And we just did a study looking at how if you frame depression as kind of a signal, as I'm kind of talking about, compared to a biological disorder, then people can actually, um, you can actually alleviate some of those kind of hopeless beliefs that you and me have been talking about. And so that's just one study. It's under review, but that's kind of the direction that I'm interested in right now. One of my colleagues, uh, his name is Todd Cashton. He's a professor at George Mason. He wrote a book called like The Upside of Your Dark Side. And that like kind of uh, title really sticks with me of like, how can people use uh, depression in a way that's like adaptive for them? Okay, gotcha. I was just curious. So when you were doing this research, I mean, this sounds like, you know, a lot of variables are going to question, obviously sifting through you said 600 something videos um, and then filtering out, you know, the categories, oh, are these in English or are they 25 minutes or longer? A lot of, mm -hmm. you know, things to actually get down to your sample size. What were like some of the challenges you ran into just actually pursuing this as a topic? Oh my God, this was hell to do. So when I tell my colleagues that I watched 600 videos they were like, why don't you just use like a machine learning program, like a computerized program to train the program, code the messages. And the thing with videos is that when you watch a video, there's different images going on in the background. There's different subtext. People are very animated and they use different um, jokes and sarcasm. So uh, they might say like depression is great, but they mean it in a sarcastic way and, you know, 
so I had to watch all these videos. And so some of the challenges of it were just like, honestly, just picking up on some of the nuances of the subtleties of what people were saying. And to do that, we actually, I had a lot of really awesome research assistants transcribe all the videos for us. So when I watched these videos, I didn't just watch them one time through. I watched, you know, some of them like six, seven times. And I also had like a script of like really getting detailed about coding what messages were there. And so it just took a long time. I don't know if that's a specific challenge, but I think just making sure that we got everything that there was, because this is open access and I want, I want there to be integrity to the work that we're doing. Oh, for sure. I did have a follow-up question. So as, as far as, do you think the results of the study would be different if you studied them in another language? Because I, I know for, you know, it, it was the videos were mostly in English, so these are from English-speaking countries. But I know in different cultural contexts, there are different views on how depression is perceived as, you know, I don't know, just how it's perceived in general. So I, I was wondering, how, would, how do you think that would influence the results if it was in different cultural contexts? This is not my expertise in terms of outside the United States. It's something I'm working on of, again, like thinking about this, these stigma beliefs and just beliefs about depression from a different cultural standpoint. So that's a really good point. Um, I imagine it would be different depending on the language and the culture. And I'd be really interested to see if other researchers do similar work. It doesn't have to be YouTube, but just different work um, comparing the different messages out there. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I, I was just interested because I think I read, I think in, I, I hope I'm getting this right. I think in Papua New Guinea, how depression is perceived is it's not, it's, it's not as much of a process or something like that. It's, it's very different to how we perceive it here in the United States or in, you know, the UK or anything like that. So I, I was just very curious. Yeah. If a follow-up study would be done on that, I, I feel like that would provide insights into depression as a whole, not just in like an English speaking context. Totally. And it's not just depression. It's really any mental health problem. Um, You know, something like uh, hearing voices in some cultures can be people perceive it as like um, a religious experience or God talking to them. And so it is really important to recognize that the way that we viewed depression was from this kind of uh, United States centric lens, this kind of Western mental health model of depression. What do you you think that you found after completing the study that was surprising to you before you were going into it? I was really surprised. You know, the way that we write the paper, we just report on our specifically coded variables. And, you know, I highlight some of the kind of the dark side of some of the message that are out there. That said, I do think that there are some really good videos out there about depression with good information. And some of them are the most popular ones. So if anyone's interested, I would say that um, it's better to probably trust the specific, more educational organizations or mental health organizations that post videos about depression. There are really good graphics, animations. Uh, I think NAMI or has a pretty good one. It's called like the Black Dog That's Depression. If anyone knows what Crash Course is yeah. run by the people who also are a part of like Khan Academy, they have some really good videos about depression. The last thing I was really happy to see was that a lot of the videos actually emphasize that depression isn't a personal weakness. And that is such a misconception that's out there that I still hear from um, people I work with in clinical work or, you know, my family members that 
I'm really happy that that message saying like, you know, depression is a personal weakness. It is serious. Um, and here's what you can do about it. So just a- another question is, so you're obviously in the field of depression research. You have colleagues who are in the field of depression research. And I think, you know, as a society, as we've become, you know, more open about mental health issues. You see a lot of, you know, actors, uh, you know, athletes, they talk about their own mental health issues and they're not as stigmatized as before. Where do you see that progressing as we start to learn more and more about, say, maybe causes of depression and treatment of depression? I am happy that over the last 20, 30 years, people definitely are more open to talking about mental health treatment and even just talking openly about depression. That said, I think that's a pretty, um, it's an important first step, but it is just kind of a first step of just people starting to talk about therapy, especially compared to like 40, 50 years ago. So I think where I hope that people go with our culture is that I hope more people just know what depression is and what it can look like. And I hope when people start recognizing that they might have depression rather than feeling like they have to hide it with themselves within themselves due to you know stigma or discrimination that they might experience i hope that we live in a culture where people are encouraged and supported to seek treatment for depression and that people are there to uplift people and help them through the process and support them versus kind of the current state of affairs is you got a lot of people still you know living with any sort of mental illness in, in silence understandably, because they might feel like if they speak up about it, they might be, you know, discriminated against for some reason. So that's where I hope that we go in in our culture, that people know more about it, and people feel like they can seek treatment for it and are supportive for it. Well, I I think that was a very poignant and uh, nuanced statement. And uh, I I don't know, I think that'd be that'd be probably a good place to wrap. I I appreciate you, Andrew, for doing this interview. Uh, To tell I don't know how many people are in the audience, but, you know, where to find your work, what what you're doing in the future for research projects and, you know, social media or anything, if you want to promote anything. Sure. If anyone wants to follow me on Twitter, it's just Andrew Devendorf, first and last name. I like tweeting. Okay. It's it's along the lines of, again, science communication. Uh, For anybody who's a mental health provider, please get a Twitter and uh, share Again, credible and helpful work about mental health. Get the word out there. Okay. Uh, well, I really appreciate you. Uh, thank you for taking time. I thought it was a great conversation and probably a good way to start uh, the world-exclusive podcast. So uh, thank you so much, Andrew. Uh, Matthew Butai, your host, signing off.